Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and I welcome you to another story of inspiration and overcoming adversity on this very important episode of The Eternal Optimist Podcast, where we help you to hear strategies from others who have survived, who then learned to thrive, who overcome a tremendous adversity. And today is just another day. And we figured out how to get by and get through and let these things work for us. And that's what today's episode is all about. Before we enter the episode, I'd like to invite you to go and do a rating and review on the Apple or Spotify or however you're listening to this podcast. And also to come and visit me Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Eastern time on my live stream which is on Facebook and Instagram at Eternal Optimist Podcast. And it's on YouTube at The Eternal Optimist. Thanks so much, team. Today's story will have your jaw dropping as today's guest, Mr. Dex Randall, chronicles a tale of extreme burnout and frustration in his career, which led him to a series of enormous difficulties from a heart attack to excruciating pain to needing to recover and being stuck immobilized at his house, to being struck by a car, to even more challenges and pain, all to bring us to the point where he survives and then thrives. Dex is a leader in coaching people who are stuck in their careers in burnout, and he specializes in showing them how they can make a comeback too. I took notes. I felt so inspired by Dex. He's a really good soul. He's lived the eternal optimist values. And you'll learn today through listening that if Dex could come back from this, you can too, my friends. Enjoy this important episode with my new friend, Mr. Dex Randall. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. All right, here we go, team. Getting ready to rock and roll today. Mr. Dex Randall is on the show. And excited to have him on. We're going to talk about burnout. We're going to talk about heart attacks. We're going to talk about who he's leading and coaching. We're going to talk about a road accident. Whew. Man, there is going to be some stuff today. It is my privilege and pleasure to welcome my new friend and our guest to the show today, Mr. Dex Randall from the land down under in Australia. Dex, welcome to the show today, sir. How are you? Thank you so much, Matt. I'm lovely. How are you? Oh, man, exceptional. Today we're recording on March 2nd, 2023, and the soccer schedule just came out. So coaching a girls' soccer team, and excited to see that. Just got a book deal 
done. So our first book's coming out here soon by the end of the year. So excited for that. Grateful to be here with you today, Dex. I read your story and I'm super intrigued and I cannot wait to share your story with the world. I'd love to simply dive deep right away and go into some challenges if we can. Is that cool? For sure. Let's do it. Okay, brother, let's do it. So the way we like to start off the show, Eternal Optimist Podcast, is by sharing what's hard, what's challenging, because so many people out there think that when people are successful, ah, it's a piece of cake for them. They did it. It must be easy for them. And you and I both know that it's not always what it looks like. It's under the water. We're going a million miles an hour like a duck. You can go back anywhere you'd like to in the span of your life, starting today, going back to childhood. I'd love to zero in on what's something, an experience in your life that's been very challenging for you. You can start there, wherever you like, Dex. Crikey. (laughs) I think we've all had very many. (laughs) And I could go back and tell you a long story, but um, when I came across you and I was thinking about what we talked about today, really, in terms of success in life and in terms of where I'm at now, I wanted to talk about an episode in 2017 because... I've worked pretty hard in my career. I've been in software development for decades. It was a wonderful career for me because that's just how my mind works. I love problem solving and all of that. And I was very successful and I had a string of really exciting jobs. But 2017, that was my challenge year. I ended up working in a startup and it was something I really believed in. It was about financial mindfulness, people who were in difficulties with financial stress. And we were trying to put a product out there and I was the person in charge of publishing product. Unfortunately, there were only three of us in the company. There was the founder, me, and there was the developer because it was very early stages. I could never fulfill my role and I got more and more stressed because I couldn't launch the product because the founder fundamentally didn't want to launch the product. He was a little bit too scared. He felt it wasn't ready. This was the role I was in in my career where I wasn't successful. Everything up until there, I'd worked my butt off and managed to make everything successful against all the headwinds. But I got into this one and I couldn't. (laughs) And I became super stressed. And as time went by, more and more and more stressed, more and more and more stressed. And then one day I just went in and had a meeting with him. I said, we've got to get this product out and here's what I think. And he just said, oh, no, let's go and do this other thing to raise some more money instead. I had this sudden realization that he was never going to let me launch the product. And I quit. The thought flashed through my brain. I was so stressed out, not sleeping, not eating properly, worrying about work the whole time. I just thought the stress is actually going to kill me if I don't quit my job. And I said to him, look, I can't do it. This product's never going out. That's the only job I have. I can't do it. I'm leaving. Tuesday morning it was, and I left. I just took on my stuff and I went home. Did you know going into that conversation, man, this is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? It was the straw. It was absolutely the straw. And I suddenly had this moment of clarity where I thought, my body's breaking down, my mind's breaking down, I'm in burnout. I can't do this anymore. I can't allow myself to do it anymore. I'm going to crash. I've crashed. So I just said, oh, I can't. I can't. And I went and I left. But unfortunately, my realization came a bit late and three weeks later, I had a heart attack. When my body relaxed a little bit after leaving, I was running on the beach one morning, six o'clock, and my body just went, that's it, red card. And I had a big heart attack on the beach. Wow. Not a warning heart attack. By the time the ambulance got there, they're like, oh my God, oh my God. The people in the ambulance were freaking out. They're like, I don't know if we're going to get you as far as hospital. 
Dex, are you cognizant? Are you like aware of what's happening? I haven't studied or haven't had many conversations with someone who's had a heart attack and explained, can you, if it's okay, could you go back to that? And what's happening when you're right on the beach? How do you start to feel it? What's happening at that moment, please, if you can share. Yeah, it was just coming light. It was early. There was nobody there and I was just running and I suddenly felt my chest was very heavy. It was starting to come pain in there. I got this kind of pain down my arms. It was like they didn't belong to me anymore and they were very heavy. And I thought, hmm, arms. I happened to know that one of the symptoms of a heart attack come in the arms. And I thought, hmm, that's not good. It's just this little minnow. It's like, hmm, my arms aren't working properly. They're not good. And I just thought it could be a heart attack. And I kind of banished the thought and I kept running, as you do. <laughs> I kept running, but it kept hurting. And my body was heavy and heavy. The pain in my chest. And I was like, hmm. So I stopped after a while, around about a K, 2K or something. I stopped and I was on the beach. So I thought, I'll just jump in the water for a swim and that'll relax my body. I jumped in the water, didn't get better. I went out, dried off, had a shower, went to coffee with my friends. I was like, you know, it still doesn't feel right. Then I cycled up the road to meet another friend, cycled up the hill. That wasn't good. It was like, oh, no, that's hurting. I just kept going thinking if it was a real heart attack, I would probably have collapsed by now. So I just kept going, but it was like, no, my body's trying to tell me something. And eventually I went home, I cycled home. <laughs> then I sat at home and I Googled the symptoms of a heart attack. And finally I dialed the ambulance. <sighs> they said, if, I had, if I'd left it another half an hour, I probably would have been dead. Oh, wow. You kept running, got in the water, cycled to coffee, cycled home, Googled it, and then called the ambulance a half an hour more and you'd be dead. Wow. Well, Thank you. So what happened next? You went to the hospital. What happens after they tell you you're having a heart attack? What happens then? The people in the operating theater were also quite activated, let me just say. There was about 12 of them scurrying around me doing this and that. Anyway, they put a stent in and I was in ICU for a few days because my heart didn't want to restart. It was beating incredibly slowly. It was trying to kind of fade away. They kept having to try and fluff it up again. And I was very sick and I couldn't speak and the my brain went funny. I couldn't formulate a word. Didn't really know what was going on. But then after about three days, it kind of quietened down. They sent me back home. Took about wow. six months to recover. They told me, they said, do not move for about six months. Don't move because your heart needs absolute rest, but it can't have it because it has to keep beating. As little beating as possible, please. Just don't move. Lie down for a few months. I wonder how you respond to that, considering that you just ran 2K and biked several K while you were actually having the heart attack. Were you able to stay rested or stay still and for six months? I did my best. I lay on the sofa and I did some kind of yogic stretching stuff, and that was about it. And I did a rehab class at the hospital for heart patients. They were all, I mean, I was 55. They were all in their 70s and 80s and stuff. It was just ambling about. <laughs> Wow. I had to turn up and do that with them. I did try and slow down, yeah. But it's not in my nature. I'm so type A. I'm just a go person. It was very difficult. I read a lot of books. I couldn't work. I couldn't work because my brain and body were so exhausted. I couldn't function. So I had to stop working for that time. It was very unpleasant. And I lived alone, so it was very difficult to look after myself feed myself and stuff like that. I had neighbors helping me out. For those of you who are listening, you can't see Dex right now, but I'm looking at him in the eye face to face and there's no way that was 
six years ago, five years ago. There's no way he's about 60 right now. He looks like in his mid-40s or early 40s. I mean, he looks fit and healthy. So this is surprising and amazing to hear. Six months down, couldn't work, couldn't do much. Yeah, so I had the heart attack in July. And by December, I was just kind of starting to come good again. Get out the house a little bit. I had to walk a little bit. And I kept blacking out. If I was walking, I would, my body would just try and lose consciousness. Man. By December, I was kind of functional again, and I was ambling about, and I was doing a little bit. It was the first week in January. I got back on my bike and cycled down the hill, just a very short distance down the hill to the beach to meet with my friends for coffee. It was still six o'clock in the morning, another dark morning, and his car came the other way and ran me over. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. What? It just ran into me. He came up the other, he was coming the opposite direction and he turned across the front of me and on my bike going down the hill, I just T-boned the car and went <laughs> cartwheeling down the road for a few hundred meters. There we go again. Ended up back in hospital. Oh, this is a series of the most challenging events. <laughs> wow. It was a big smash. In the instant before I hit the car, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. <sighs> That's all I could think. And I hit the windscreen. I went cartwheeling off down the road and somebody scraped me up and the ambulance came. It took them about half an hour to stabilize me before they could get me into the ambulance because I'd cartwheeled down the road at such high speed. I'd broken a lot of bones and yeah, it was messy. What bones? What were the extent of the injuries? In my legs, my hip, my back, my arm. I just managed to save my neck because I had a backpack on and it was protecting the top part of my spine and my neck because the backpack kind of rode up in the accident when I was cartwheeling sideways down the road. It protected my neck and back. Otherwise, I don't know, I'd have made it at all. But I broke the bottom end of my spine, a few bones there and pelvis. So I got into hospital and they started to find out what was wrong with me and patch a few things up. And then they said, well, you're going to be in hospital for at least three months because you won't be able to stand up. You can't stand up. You've got so many broken bones, you won't be able to stand for three months. You're just going to have to lie in bed and not move at all. I wasn't allowed to get out of bed. I wasn't allowed to sit up for ages. Wow. How do you take this news from the doctor in the moment when you're hearing this? I mean, what's going through your mind then? You know what? I just couldn't digest it, really. The idea that I would be completely incapacitated. And that was before they'd found out all of my injuries. <laughs> They found what? more. They, they did more? more scans and found more injuries after that. My ankle, my right ankle was totally smashed to pieces. They had to screw it all back together again. They're like, you'll probably be able to, we're not sure, but we think you'll be able to walk again after about a year. Wow. Wow, Dax. I'm in Australia. My family are in the UK. So I texted them and told them I'm back in hospital. They're like, oh, you've got to be kidding by the way, I love you got a sense of humor because you got a big smile on your face right now. So it's okay to smile. But damn, <laughs> wow, you've gotten hit by heart attack, broken everything, families in a different continent. And we're starting over incapacitated, immobile, after already starting over for the last six months, immobile in a different way. So what next? I was kind of starting to get the message after this, that the world was trying to slow me down a bit. Very effectively, as it turned out. I had plenty of time to think. Okay. What did you think about? Well, I do a bit of alternative health stuff, and I'd been doing it as an antidote to the head work of IT and software development. It's very heady work. It's very analytical work. 
but I'm quite a heart-based spiritual kind of person. And on the side, I've been doing a bit of energy work with people, with my friends, and just as a kind of sideline in the evenings, because I love that kind of work. I love that kind of connection. I'd signed up to add a bit of coaching onto that because what I'd realized is the energy work I was doing with people was very effective at healing whatever they needed to have healed. It helped promote healing with them, but it didn't last very long with some of the people because they reverted back to their previous habits that had contributed to the problem in the first place. So they couldn't always run with the ball. So I thought I need a bit of stronger coaching element so that when I'm able to stimulate some healing movement within them, I can help them continue that for longer. So some people would continue it for months and years. Some people would be back a week or two or three later, same problem recurring. And I thought, well, I would like to be able to support them more. So I decided to add on coaching. So middle of January, I already had an interview to join a coaching course. I'd arranged it in December. So I need to do coaching. So in December, I'd arranged an interview to join a coaching program. And when I was in hospital, the interview came up. So I'm lying there in my hospital bed with Zoom. I've got my laptop lying down. I'm lying down, but I've got the laptop perched on my chest. And I tried to have this Zoom interview from my hospital bed with my little hospital gown. I couldn't move. <laughs> Dude, talk about commitment. Wow. <laughs> so they're like, really? You're in hospital? Said, when are you getting out? And I said, well, I don't know. And the course was in May. I said, well, they're telling me I can get out in three months. And what I really want to do most of all in this whole world is go and visit my family in UK, but it's going to be tough because it's a 24-hour flight and I'm going to be in a lot of pain. But after that, if your course is in May, so I'll visit them in April if I can. If I'm able to, I'll visit them in April. I was pretty committed to that. And then if I can, I'll come to your course in May, which is in America. <laughs> Another kind of 30-hour flight or something ridiculous. I just thought, well, we'll see. But here's one of the things that I think is when life hits you up a bit with something that's unpalatable and difficult to manage, it's very good to have something to look forward to and to commit to creating something better in your future, whatever that looks like. And I really wanted to see my family because I hadn't seen them after the heart attack and they were worried about me. And then I was back in hospital and they were even more worried about me. And I thought, I just want to be with them. And I had that to kind of aim for. And it was really helpful to me to think about being with them and to think about being physically able to get on a plane and make that journey. I just pretty much just decided that was my goal. I mean, the coaching course, fine, but really the family thing was important. And I wanted to have something to look forward to. The hospital were like, oh, I don't know if you can manage that. I'm like, I'm doing it. Dex, it sounds like you have something to look forward to now. And in looking forward to that, you also know that you're going to be in a plane for 24 hours. And you know that's going to be physically, mentally very challenging. How did you get to that moment and prepare yourself? And what was that experience like on the plane? Well, I had to do lying down exercises from day one to keep my muscles from atrophying. I had to do leg exercises and arm exercises and all that, lying down in bed. Do 200 of these and 200 of those and 100 of these three times a day. You know, it was not nothing. So after two months, I'm still lying in bed. I still haven't so much as got out of bed once. They've had to take full care of me just lying there. But after two months, they let me out of bed. And then I started to do rehab in their gym. So I would go on this wheelchair, first of all down to the gym and they would do exercises there. So I'd had a bit of prep 
And I just said to them, look, this is what I'm trying to achieve. I don't know if I can do it, but I'd love your help. What can we do? And eventually I did get onto a walking frame, like a Zimmer frame, like an old person. And then eventually, right before I got out of hospital, they put me on crutches. Man, that was hard. I was doing a few steps a minute at the beginning. That's like, you've got to help me get on the crutches and make that work. But it was so painful because I had a lot of breakages in my pelvis and my back. So sitting down was very painful. I thought sitting down on a plane is going to be murder. But they gave me one of these inflatable pillow things to sit on. That was helpful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) And you're so cool the way you tell this story and so accepting of your own story of it. I'm over here feeling it because I have back troubles. Nothing that's been broken like yours has been broken with all the bones in the body. But sitting on a plane for two hours is hard for me. And your four steps a minute is incredibly painful. And you're getting to a place where you're trying to get to a 24-hour flight. So you said you're two months there incapacitated and you start to move, you start to walk, you start to do the physical therapy. What was that last month like before you got to the plane? I was determined. Mm. They put me on an exercise bike, a reclining exercise bike. I wasn't going to accept no for an answer. Because apparently a lot of people who have this level of accident would be in a wheelchair for life, like they would never recover. I just thought, no, if there's a chance of recovery, I'm going for it. Even though all the pain, even though incredibly difficult uphill battle, like what was the driving motivation inside of you? What was leading this fight through all the pain? I think the same as anybody who has painful misfortune in life. You've got the pain anyway, so you might as well do something useful with it. But also, I really wasn't looking forward to 20 years in a wheelchair, if I could avoid it. But by that stage also, I was thinking about my burnout. I'd had plenty of time lying down thinking about my burnout and what I wanted to do if I could become well again. And I really wanted to, I felt that I had been given a gift of learning how to support myself and therefore learning how to support other people through difficulties in life. That was therefore my calling. It can be a purpose for me to help those people, first of all, in burnout, who are stressed, who are anxious, disconnected and all of that and suffering from burnout, but also people who had other challenges in life that they needed to overcome. I felt I was becoming more and more equipped to support them. And I thought, well, if I get better, this is all I'm going to do now. And it became a very motivating force. I think for a lot of people, for example, cancer survivors, a lot of them go and work with people who have cancer. I think sometimes these misfortunes connect us with our capacity to integrate with one another and be there for each other. So in a way, for me, there was a gift inside this, a more connecting gift. That level of humanity, that direct kind of encounter with human vulnerability, human frailty, the impermanence of life, there's a gift in there. For me, there was. I've listened to some of your episodes and I know a lot of people have suffered incredibly deeply. I think that they've been very courageous to recover from that. But you got to do what you can with what you got. Somehow, it's better for you if you can do what you can with what you've got and develop compassion, allow your heart to remain engaged. I didn't want to be a victim, for sure. I don't want to take that stance because it's helpless and hopeless and painful. Time for a quick break for a sponsor. Today, I'd like to shout out the Life Shift podcast with host Matt Gilhooley. I had the privilege of guesting on his show, 
And Matt has an uncanny ability to show empathy and make it a safe space to share pivotal moments in life that lead to transformation. I feel that since I met him, my empathy and my ability to feel the power of my emotions that I have that I've been gifted, I feel it's enhanced. I feel I've gotten better at it rather than simply blocking them out. I encourage any of our listeners to check out Back to the Show. How did this experience that you've been chronicling for us lead to you coaching others? You mentioned these words of wisdom here a moment ago, and I'm curious if you could take us and bridge us through the plane and the coaching. I still can't imagine a 24-hour flight followed by a 30-hour flight, so I'm wondering how all of that worked out. But if you could take us through that, because I'd love to get to your coaching and love to get to how you're serving people, because I find it pretty inspirational. So please take us through the plane and then let's get to your coaching. Well, okay. So I got out of hospital at the beginning of April. They wanted me to stay a bit longer. I was like, can't, got a plane to catch. So they sent me home and it was difficult at home because I could still barely move on my crutches. I could hardly get across my kitchen to get something to eat or a cup of tea. It was tough, but I just thought, well, I'm still doing it. So I got on the plane, crossed my fingers. I had some painkillers. It wasn't as bad as I thought it could have been. Sitting down was still very painful, but I just got through it somehow and I saw my family and that was worth the trek. That was really worth the trek. So if I never see them again, at least I'm here now. So I had a visit with my family, so that was lovely. And then I got the flight back and then I thought, well, that worked out. So now I'm going to America. I was about three or four weeks later. I'd rehabilitated a bit by then. My muscles had got used to it a little bit. So I went over and I did that course as well. I just thought, well, if this is what I'm meant to be doing, then I'm doing it. And my heart was so much in, if I can support people, well, then I can support people. And once I got back home, I could, of course, work over Zoom. So I didn't need to be so mobile. And everybody said to me, you can't work with professional men in burnout. And that became my niche of people I wanted to work with because I could see that the sheer number of people in burnout by that time, this is 2018, was on the rise. It was enormous and still rising. I could see the field of suffering was gigantic and underserviced. And I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. And people said, no, you can't do that because basically professional men in burnout are not going to ask for help. They're Taipei people. They're never going to come to you and say, hey, could you give us a hand up? And so everybody advised me not to. And I just thought, no, I'm keeping going. And frankly, through the coaching, I developed a method that would deal with all the symptoms of burnout, like stress, anxiety, overwork, overwhelm, frustration, irritation, the whole thing. I just developed a method of coaching through all of those symptoms. And really, it was incredibly successful because burnout sometimes seems like an incurable problem that people don't know how to deal with. And a lot of the solutions that people were proposing weren't very effective. And I found a way of doing it that really hit home with people and really helped them become buoyant again and support themselves in a way that genuinely reconnected the parts of them that were feeling lost and confused and hopeless, gave them the tools to sustain a much more passionate and engaged life. Because what I think is one of the problems with burnout is we feel disconnected from our abilities and from our purpose and from our passion and from the people around us. We feel a bit helpless and we lost our mojo. We've lost our ability to contribute in a way that we think is purposeful. And it's terribly painful. I think coming out of burnout is we get our passion back and our reconnection with people. And once we know how to support ourselves, then we also know how to support other people. 
It's a reconnecting process, our humanity to their humanity. And this is why I work with what I call heart-centered leadership, because I think this dispassionate, analytical, leave your emotions at home flavor of leadership is part of the difficulty of burnout because we're whole people. We have hearts. We care. And disconnecting that is very, very painful. People I work with in burnout tend to be very altruistic, caring people underneath, but they've parked their emotions so many years ago and just battled on and battled on like I did. Battle on, battle on, leave your emotions at home, just keep going, keep going, keep going. They're that kind of people. So when they restore their own capacity, naturally they're supporters of other people around them. They recognize that people around them are suffering emotionally, not just in terms of performance. And then they're prepared to support those people. And I think that's what the world needs right now. We got plenty of disconnection. What we really need now is connection. 100% agree with everything you're sharing. And it makes me wonder what you said before, especially men who may be in burnout. These may be strong personality men who aren't going to publicly admit this or come forward and proactively search for a solution. So I'm wondering how might you find them? And what is the first conversation like getting someone to admit to themselves and start the journey? Yeah, that really is the issue. I think a lot of men, and me included, I never told anybody I was burnt out, even though I was descending into burnout for years. I never mentioned it because that would have been professional suicide. I would have never, I could have never fronted up. My second last job was in another startup and I was being bullied and it wasn't helping. And eventually I did say that to the boss and they sacked me. Wow. And I think for many people, particularly men, particularly high achieving, very high professional discipline men, they're never going to show the chinks in the armor because it's not done. So it is difficult for people to come to me, even when they know they can't solve their own problem, even when they're aware that they're going downhill. Yeah. I do get a lot of referrals from the partners of the men. And they get the nudge in the ribs. You're not okay. You need a bit of help here. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes I do get men who are just Googling things, stress reduction, stress management, anxiety, whatever it is, and they come to me. And I also have a podcast, which helps because I talk a lot about the symptoms of burnout, that there's actually nothing fundamentally wrong with the person in burnout. They're just having an experience of kind of overwork and overwhelm and stuff. So I've got a lot of podcast episodes talking about the specific symptoms of burnout and how to fix them. And I think that's good because it lets people listen to the podcast without putting their hand up yet. And if they can identify that that describes the experience they're having, then there's a solution. Then sometimes people come to me and say, you know what, you've just described me in a nutshell and you've told me you can help. So here I am. But there's a lot of stigma, I think, still attached to burnout. For men and women, but I think very strong one for a lot of high-achieving men. Dex, what is the name of your podcast? Oh, it's called Burnout to Leadership. Burnout to Leadership. And we'll link this in the show notes, everyone. So you can go there and you can click on the link and go straight to it. If there would be an episode that we might start with, is there anyone in particular to listen to first? I would say start at the beginning. I go through all of the basic stuff in the first four episodes Burnout 101, what is burnout? Why do people get it? Why can't they recover very easily? How do you recover? And episode four is about anxiety, which tends to be a leading problem for people. So I suggest people start at the beginning. Can you share an example of someone that you've worked with and 
the challenges they described at first and then how they improved and evolved over the coaching sessions? Yeah, there's a very common pattern, I think. How they tend to notice it is they feel terrible all the time. They've got a very difficult problem with their moods and emotions, but they often come to me because they're worried about their performance, actually. They're very competent technically, but because they're overworked and overwhelmed all of the time, they're actually procrastinating quite a bit and not getting their work done. And people around them are starting to notice that they're not getting their work done. They're not showing up. It's quite often. And they go home at the end of the day and they're so irritable. They don't even want to talk to their families, their kids, their partner, and they're just grouchy the whole time. They go to bed grouchy and they get up grouchy, checking their messages at work. And it's just an endless landscape of mental suffering, pain, anxiety, worry about whether they can hold their job down, whether they're doing their job properly, whether they're supporting people, whether they're making their targets quite often. Like if it's a salesperson, for example, I'll get them in and they're saying, well, I'm not meeting my targets. My performance against my target is going down and down and down. And now I'm worried about that. Or sometimes I work with physicians and they quite often come to me saying, well, now the industry regulations are getting tighter and tighter and tighter. The compliance is tighter. The insurance is not supporting people to come and get repaid for their procedures. And so they're not coming so much anymore. So I'm not making so much money. And then I've got this whole set of staff. And then we went through COVID and people weren't coming in. And there's a lot of threads that are just kind of unraveling all at once around the edges. And people start to be more and more concerned about Can I maintain this job, this income level that I'm supporting my family with, and I'm just feeling frustrated and angry and upset and detached and pissed off with the system at work or kind of an implosion, really. And I think people feel the kind of inner collapse. It's like, I'm not winning here, and all I've ever done is win. But right now, I don't feel like I'm winning. How did COVID exacerbate the challenges that you've seen in your profession with burnout? Yeah, I think it really cranked up, particularly the first year or two of COVID. There was a lot of panic and stress. A lot of people's latent high levels of fear and anxiety just all popped out to the surface together and we became very suspicious of one another even in COVID. Are you going to give me COVID? Are you going to give me COVID? (laughs) We weren't allowed to be around people, but then sometimes we didn't want to be around people. We got scared of each other. It's this modern kind of way of communicating that so much is online, so much is airbrushed, so much is not quite real. You know, you look at social media, we present an image of us that's not really us. And there became a bigger and bigger gap between who we said we were and who we actually were. And I think that all cultivates a great deal of anxiety then, because then you've got to maintain the gap. And then we had this separation because of COVID and we all had to stay in our houses and everything like that. We were separate from others and we missed the human connection, which is an antidote to anxiety in some extent. When you're in a room with people, there are mitigating factors. You can kind of be in it together. But when you're stuck at home, you can't be in it together. You're just feeling the pressure without so much of an outlet. Anecdotally, my experience is that burnout increased a lot during COVID. And we're all worried about, am I going to keep my job? Can I protect my family? Can I protect my children? Can I get their education taken care of? Will I still have my job? Will my salary be the same? Mm-hmm. There was quite a big crank up of the external factors for people. It was like the perfect storm on top of the anxiety that I've watched building for decades in people at a community level. You know, there's a lot of mental health problem escalation at the same time. It concerned me very greatly. One of the big factors of me doing this work was I watched that in developed countries, 
the suicide rate was increasing. In Australia, in America, in Europe, it was increasing. And in Australia at that time, suicide was the leading cause of death in men between 15 and 45. I thought something's gone badly wrong here. Yeah. People aren't getting the support they need. Well, if I am someone who's suffering from burnout, and maybe I've identified that, or maybe I've identified with some of the symptoms that you've shared today or you shared your podcast, what do I have to look forward to or when I'm better, when this burden is less? What is that going to feel like? What might that look like, Dex? Good question. I think all of the people who come to me that I work with, that I meet with, that I talk to, are amazing, wonderful, big-hearted human beings who've been a bit clobbered by circumstance in life, and they've lost their connection, they've lost their passion. But all of that is restored fairly easily and really quite quickly. There's a reconnection process. There's a re-championing process. So what I do is I teach people to champion themselves. This sounds kind of nebulous, really, but what I really want to do is help people find their passion again, because passion helps us enjoy our lives more, helps us re-engage in lives in a way that satisfies us. And it helps us be much more easily present with other people because in burnout, one of the biggest problems is we have shame. We think we're failing somehow. And then we withdraw and isolate. And the withdrawing makes everything worse because one of the things we withdraw from is our own nature, our own good nature. So then we have this flame out. We lost our passion. We've lost the love. We can't find it anymore. And we just zone out. That's temporary. It's super temporary. Like When people work with me, what I say is you're going to start feeling better in three to four weeks, and then you're going to keep feeling better, more and more connected, more and more revived, more and more enthusiastic, passion, contentment, joy, peace, connection all come back. And that's just a skill. So once you learn a skill to find your passion and find your reconnection with all the people you love and care about and would love to support, once you find that connection again, you can maintain it. So this is where your real humanity comes back and you start enjoying being a whole human again. That's so available. And I see people take off again, enjoy their family, enjoy their family time, enjoying being around the kids and their partners, enjoy their work challenges in a way they thought was never going to be possible again. I got a little visual then of a duck swimming on a pond, you know, it's just been in a fight and it comes out and it's swimming away and suddenly kind of shakes its feathers and it just feels okay again. It's kind of like that. Okay. There's a massive recovery that happens that helps people reconnect with their heart in this really sustaining, fulfilling way. And a lot of people, if you say that to somebody in burnout, they just look at you and go, no, I'm in too much pain. And they're kind of still numbed out with the level of pain. But it's such a reliable process. Time and time again, I watch people come out and they're just refluffed. Everything's just falls back into place again. Burnout is just being very fractured inside. We compartmentalize everything that's painful and separate it all off until there's hardly anything left of the real us. So when we reintegrate everything, all the energies fall back into line and everything comes sweet again, as improbable as that sounds. And people's careers take off then as well. They start to get a new wind. I feel so fortunate to be able to work with people through this because it's so exciting. Dex, if someone wants to inquire more, they might be shy, maybe nervous, maybe a little bit uncomfortable reaching out. You know, How might we discreetly or confidentially just be able to connect with you? And what might be the offers that we can connect around to, to take that next step to find out more? 
Well, I think if people are a bit nervous, they can have a bit of a listen to the podcast, Burnout to Leadership. That's a good place for them to warm up a little bit and see if they would like to have a chat. What I do is I invite people to come and have a talk with me directly because I think what I can show people straight away is when I hear what's happening for them, I can immediately show them how things might be in their circumstances for them. Most people come away from that feeling pretty different than they came in. I'm not trying to hurt anyone here. What I'm really trying to show them is that something better is available. But I've also got a free video course that can help them address the symptoms of burnout, like anxiety, overwork, overwhelm, frustration, feeling out of control. So that's another start point that people can just start moving the needle a little bit. We'll have that in the show notes as well. How might we connect with you on your social media and get other glimpses into what you do and and how you're impacting the world, Dex? Coach Dex Randall is my social media handle. Well, Dex, before we make the shift to the lightning round and the last couple questions that we have here, is there anything else you'd like to share on this subject that you've so gracefully and carefully dived into with us today? Any last thoughts around the burnout before we move to our lightning round? Thanks, Matt. I don't think there is. I haven't talked about this stuff for quite a long time, and it's quite interesting (laughs) thinking about the whole thing again. But no, we covered it pretty comprehensively, I think. Hopefully people get a flavor. I feel that way. And especially those who watch the YouTube video and just get a chance to see you and see your authenticity. I think you'll find that this is very genuine and real. And it sounds quite amazing, especially as someone who was a highly functioning workaholic and a recovering perfectionist. I can see the symptoms of the burnout. And I was a prime candidate for that not long ago. I appreciate that you're able to describe it. And for those of you out there listening, And I know that a lot of people listening to this podcast are the prototypical high achiever and the person who I know is facing this exact challenge. And please, you know, reach out to Dex. He's very inviting and easy to talk to. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you thus far. We're not off the hook yet, though, my friend. It's time to ding, 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 go into the lightning round here for our last wrap up questions. And I'd first like to ask Dex, when you hear the words eternal optimism or eternal optimist, What does eternal optimism mean to you? I think it's reconnecting with the goodness of life for me, knowing that there's a purpose, knowing that there's something greater than you that's taking you on a journey that's worth going on. I love being optimistic because really the alternative is unattractive, isn't it? Well, you're preaching the choir here, brother. I'm with you on this one. Yeah, I don't want the alternative. (laughs) Millions and millions and millions of people have suffered intensely far more than I could ever suffer. Man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl. Well, you answered the next question before I asked it. What impact has that book had for you? Victor's decision not to go down the road of seeing his experience as just the awfulness of it. He had an enormous amount of strength and intelligence and courage to choose to see what was happening for him a different way and to choose to stay connected with his wife every day. That is one courageous man. And I think anybody who can choose to see that, to see their life in that way, puts themselves in a strong position. Absolutely. If there is maybe a movie that has inspired you or has an impact on you, a movie or a show, something like that, anything come to mind? Gosh, the thing that sprang to mind when you said that was conversations with God. 
It's a very old movie about a guy who crashed out and became homeless, lost everything. And then he started hearing voices in his ear. It's a very old movie. Can't remember now, but it's decades old, many decades old. It was quite interesting about the possibility of redemption. Mm. I'm a spiritual person, but I don't follow a particular religion. But I just think that essence of us is that we're not alone. We can't possibly be alone. We're all part of a, a whole, whatever that looks like for each person. When you said earlier that you are a heart-centered leader and that coaching people through burnout with a heart-centered approach, that is what I thought earlier, that heart-centered leadership to me means that we're all connected in some way as a whole. And to hear you come full circle and share that, it's invigorating to me to hear that we share something common there about heart-centered leadership, that we are all connected in some way, shape, or form. So thank you for that. Well, Dex, it has been a true honor to have you on the show today. And I want to honor and appreciate you for some of the things you shared, because when you said earlier, I'm not going to allow myself to be a victim, I really truly viewed all these circumstances and challenges as a gift that now I can use to help others. To me, that sounds like eternal optimism, taking the hard stuff that comes and being able to turn it into and view it as a gift so that you can use it to inspire and help others and help the world. And I love that the frames that you have shared with us today were incredibly resilient. You used the word you were determined. And I just want to admire you and love you for that because this is a demonstration, my friends out there listening, of eternal optimism, of stick to of in the face of major, major adversity, identity crisis and conflict with your physical body. And he came back and he did it because he was driven through a purpose. And he also has a great sense of humor about it now as he was laughing and smiling much of the time as he was sharing that he was riding his bike and then uh, jogging and then (laughs) cartwheeling 400 meters down the road. I mean, just amazing resilience. And thank you, brother, for being on the show today. Much appreciated. Thank you, Dex. Thank you so much, Matt. You're a great host. I've really enjoyed chatting today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.